All right, so when I was in university, I took a, a short-term mission trip to New Zealand. Uh, we were based in a, in a university city, and our focus was on meeting students to help bring them into this newer church and kind of develop a, a university ministry of sorts. And so one day, I, I went to, to campus when they were hosting kind of a club day, which was for students to get to have this opportunity to see what organizations were around and had a presence at the university. And so I spotted this booth for the Mormon church. And I thought that that would be at least an evangelistic opportunity to have this conversation. So I went and started to chat with one of the guys at the table. And, and another, while I was chatting with them, another fellow came up and, and started to argue with the, the other uh, Mormon representative. And my assumption in this interaction was that this was an eager Christian who had different ideas about how uh, intense we should be as we try to evangelize people. If you're, you might be thinking if you're less intense than Harrison at times, that might be a issue, and that's fair enough, right? But so as as he turned away, I grabbed his attention and, and told him what I was there to do. And he began to, in that moment, interrogate me about the gospel, which I took at that time just to be another sign of his eagerness and desire to be, uh, to ensure that, you know, missionaries that are coming to where he lives are doctor sound. And uh, so our interaction about uh, his final question, though, struck me. He asked me, what happens when you believe the gospel? And I replied, well, you're joined to Christ by faith. You're justified, made right with him. And then you began this walk of the Christian life. And he responded, no. Now, I, as you might guess, was confused by that. But he went on to tell me that when you believe the gospel at that moment, if you have had true faith, you have to speak in tongues or you're not really a believer. He had no time for what our relationship to Christ is in this conversation, but a full focus on the most experiential spiritual gifts as the sum total of Christianity. Throughout 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul explores what it means to be truly spiritual, driving to the heart of the issues that were manifesting themselves, as we've already seen to some degree, in public worship. This, this discussion began back at chapter 11, verse 17, as Paul addressed factions as people came to the supper, the first of issues pertaining to public worship. And the heart of their problem in the supper was divisions in the church rather than mutual love. And the manifestation of the heart of that problem was not limited to the supper. As it appeared in the holistic conduct of their public worship. They had let prestige and division affect how they thought about and used spiritual gifts, as we already can tell just from reading our passage. They had forgotten the rule of love, as chapter 13 will show, and had made a mess of corporate worship itself, as chapter 14 addresses, because, as our passage takes up tonight, they had forgotten the true function 
of spiritual gifts. So in many ways, they they suffered from the same misunderstanding as my acquaintance in New Zealand. He had subsumed the use of spiritual gifts into their personal experiential value. Long before that interaction, though, the Corinthians had likewise shifted the focus of spiritual gifts from from what they contribute to the church what they do for the individual. So our main point tonight is that Christians are united by the gospel and gifted in order to bless others. Christians are united by the gospel and gifted in order to bless others. We're going to think about that in three points. And the first one is starting point, then shaped preferences, and then shared progress. So first, the starting point. Now let's keep this text uh, in front of us here, because there's a few uh, interesting things to point out even right at the beginning. The first thing we need to consider in this text is what issue it addresses. Now that might seem like an obvious thing to say at the beginning. Uh, but we have a, a transition going on here. In typical fashion, Paul signals a slight change of topic with his uh, somewhat usual structural cue, now concerning, right? Throughout First Corinthians, that's been kind of his shift of focus marker, now concerning. And so we're still, we're still within the overarching discussion about matters of worship where he cannot commend the Corinthians beginning at 11.17, where he told them that explicitly. But but now he shifts from the extended examination of the supper, where he can't commend them, to their thoughts about spiritual gifts and the, the wrong perspective that they have on that. So the, the, the issue, though, as we come into this, uh, as as we have in the ESV especially, is that when it says... Now concerning spiritual gifts, well, that word gifts is not in the original text. Now, translators have inferred it from where the discussion goes, beginning at verse 4, where Paul was very explicit about the issue of gifts. But but Greek, what happens is Greek often uses a a plural adjective. I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that. Don't, don't worry. Uh, just on its own, leaving us to fill in the blank. So, so imagine, if you will, that we have kind of a, a pile right here of edible sugary nuggets, all individually wrapped. And what what do we call these? Uh, I'm fighting the urge to call it candy, just for your benefit. But you call them sweets, right? A a plural adjective used to refer to the thing, just a pile of, of things, or even just sweet things, right? We could, we, um, if we didn't know what we're talking about when we say sweets, we might ask sweet what? And we might say sweet treats or sweet things. And that's what's happening here with the word spiritual in verse 1. It's simply a plural adjective, spirituals, leaving us to ask spiritual what? Why, why, why is it important though? Why would I bring that up? Because I don't think at this point, Paul has yet pulled the trigger to talk about gifts. I think he's 
setting the stage for that. And he has introduced rather spiritual matters, spiritual things. So he writes now concerning spiritual matters. And what's the function of this, of this more general idea? Sometimes when you come to me, right, and ask me about um, pastorally, you ask me about a theological issue or, or church practice or something like that, a lot of times my response, perhaps frustrating, <laughs> is I don't go right to the direct answer to your question, right? I might often say, well, well, before we can determine that answer, we need to take a step back and consider this other principle, this other more basic premise before I can just give you an answer. And in good pastoral fashion, Paul made the same move here. Yes, the issue he will tackle eventually is spiritual gifts, but he's starting further back. He started at the beginning of spiritual matters altogether. Now concerning spiritual matters, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. How you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul's point is that Christians need to understand the bedrock premise of spiritual matters is that when we were unbelievers, when we were unbelievers, the whims of our sinful hearts were the guiding principles for every decision, however you were led, right? Especially in our religious opinions. But that should have changed. That's what's going on here. The bedrock premise is you used to do whatever your inward desires said, but the Holy Spirit works differently. And so our starting point for considering spiritual matters needs to be not ourselves, but the Spirit's work. And that brings us to our uh, second point, shaped preferences. And here we need to think more about that issue of of how we're led and, and to what we are led. Whereas pagans take their own desires as as the baseline for what must be true, Christians operate differently. Our religious convictions should no longer be shaped by our own private inclinations rising out of sinful hearts. Rather, they are shaped by the Spirit's work within us. Now, Paul wrote something crucial here in verses 1 to 3 that we cannot miss. The the premise of of spiritual matters for Christians begins with the confession of Christ as our Lord. Now that seems obvious and strikes like the sort of vanilla-flavored theological claim, right? Of course, yes, Harrison, we know that when you become a Christian, you, you confess Jesus Christ. But let's think about what he's doing here for this church. Let's remember that he is driving at 
church unity to dissolve factions, and he is setting a principle before he could corrects their divisions over spiritual gifts. And so in that light, actually his point here, which is basic, is not vanilla, but fairly spicy. All the things that are occupying the Corinthians' attentions about spiritual gifts are, in fact, subordinate spiritual matters, and these Corinthians have lost focus on the exact central work of the Holy Spirit in bringing unbelievers to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have subsumed the main thing about being a Christian into the background of a focus on experiential gifts. Let's catch the force of of that argument. The Corinthians are wrapped up in, in a personal experience of spiritual gifts and then trying to measure who has the better one. Right? Paul, Paul clears the ground with one fell swoop by reminding them that the Spirit's primary work isn't to give you more prestigious gifts, but to bring you to faith. In other words, all of these experiential manifestations of the Spirit are tangential and subordinate to the Spirit's foundational work of effectual calling. Effectual calling is the work of of God's Spirit of convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills wherein he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. Shorter Catechism 31. In other words, you come to faith because the Spirit sovereignly works faith in you. And that that need for the Spirit's sovereign work, if sinners are going to believe in Christ at all, is precisely why Paul says in verse 3 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Notice here, notice here, this isn't an issue of permission. He doesn't say no one's allowed to, no one, it's not that no one may say Jesus is Lord, it's an issue of ability, what you are able to do. No one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit works that in them. When we profess Christ as Lord and Savior, this is the Spirit's fundamental work in our lives. That is the striking spiritual operation that is the fundamental Christian experience. So we're not pushing against the idea of experience. We're saying we've got to locate the right one. The foundational thing that the Spirit does, which is the one crucial, in fact ongoing, spirit Christian experience, is bringing us to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of the Spirit's work, resulting in our focus being on Jesus. So, Most crucially, if our perceived experience or our 
expected, the things we thought have happened to us or our expected experience, the things we want to have happen to us of spiritual matters, emphasize anything other than taking attention off ourselves and putting it on to Christ, trusting Him and admiring His glory as the Savior, if we're wanting, if, we, if we're thinking the Spirit's done anything besides that or hoping He will do something besides that, then we are talking about something other than the genuine work of God's Spirit. And so Paul rounded to the issue manifesting themselves in public worship that he'll get to eventually concerning gifts in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts. In other words, not ranks of gifts. There's multiple kinds, and that's fine. But the same Spirit. His point here is now that the, now that we see the fundamental spiritual matters, now that the truly important premise of the Christian experience is in place, now that we have recalibrated ourselves to understand the the proper role of Christian experience is to have our attention wrapped on confessing Christ, now that we see that, we can talk about gifts. And that, that promise to ask, we talked a lot about kind of what's going on with them. And that prompts us to ask good questions about what we expect when we participate in worship, doesn't it? Do we expect, is our, is our demand for our encounters in worship that worship will move me personally as an individual? Is that our primary demand? Or do we expect worship to lead us to a renewed confession of Jesus Christ? Are we asking songs and prayers and sermons to give us more ways to focus on myself and my experience? Or are we asking worship to culminate in a reminder of who Jesus Christ is for us? Our shaped preferences, worked by the Spirit, will be for Christ rather than some personal experiential ride. Brings us to our third point, shared progress. Let's take, let's take a moment to recap where we've been. So we, we saw first that Paul began the discussion about gifts by outlining uh, a more foundational principle about spiritual matters. And second, then that principle is that the Spirit's primary work before getting distracted about gifts and the like is bringing people to confess Christ, which should then be the heart of our worship experience. With those primary considerations in place, we need to look at what gifts do. Paul explained that effectual call is the Spirit's primary work because That is the the general, the universal, the common experience of all believers. The Spirit then grants a diversity, a plurality of gifts to various members throughout the church with the purpose of equipping us to help each other. 
verses 4 to 7 give us these principles. Now there are a variety, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And here's where he sums up that issue of purpose. Why would God, why would God do this? Why are there this diverse bundle of spiritual gifts? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. The gifts of the Spirit gives to, the gifts that the Spirit gives to Christians are, are diverse because the church needs to accomplish diverse things. Right? If we, if it, it would not be good for us if we all had the same gifts, since that wouldn't contribute anything to furthering the various sets and acts of service that the church needs to achieve for ourselves and uh, externally too. Now, particularly, however, the, the spiritual gifts are, are not given in contrast to, I think, what, what the common expectation is, are not given for our personal experience. They're not given for, for helping us have, have some reassurance. They're not given to us so that we might, you know, have, have this encounter with a spiritual presence. They're not for our individual experience. Verse 7. They are given for the, the common good. For the good of the group. For the good of the church. Which, ha, which has already been categorized under the issue of service in our passage. So if, if we think about spiritual gifts, even in relation to worship, as something that we will experience for our own emotional encounter with God, then we don't understand the biblical view of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts do not help you have an experience as such in themselves, but they help you serve. Now, here's the good news about that. God God loves you enough that he did not want your own spiritual well-being left in your own hands. Right? What, what do I mean? Circles that can focus on the experience of spiritual gifts in worship are, are often characterized by, by people burnt out or overwhelmed by the quest for the right experience, left feeling inadequate because they couldn't catch the right spiritual high at church this week. They're made to feel like subpar Christians because they, they didn't feel the right way at the right moment. And Paul, that's a burden that's hard to carry for many, but Paul gives us a list of gifts that, and said, 
none of these should put the focus on yourself. Let other people help you and you worry about someone else. The Spirit's work in you personally makes you forget yourself. And here's the beautiful thing. And think about Christ. The Spirit's gifts in you were given to you not for your own experience, but so that you might give to others. Helping them to see Christ more clearly and carrying each other's burdens in the church. And so we see that in in the proper use of spiritual gifts, our progress is shared, isn't it? These are things that contribute to the whole, not to an individual, at least not ourselves. And that call to think about others more than ourselves is a call to imitate Christ. But that imitation shouldn't be a burden because indeed it reminds us to focus on the gospel. Christ is the one who most faithfully counted others more as more significant than himself. We saw that passage at work in Philippians 2 this morning. He is the one who came, thinking not of his own experience, certainly, because he wasn't going to enjoy going to the cross. He agonized over it. And yet for the joy set before him of having you as his people, he endured the cross thinking about how he might serve. And he did that so that he could redeem you from your sins. He did that to free you from all condemnation. And he did that so that you would confess that he is the Lord and would do so to his praise forever. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have put us in a gifted group of people called your church. We're thankful that you do, in fact, enable us uh, to, to sing your praise, to consider your worship, uh, to, to be together and help one another. We're thankful, God, that you enable your people um, to be a group that isn't separated and left to ourselves, but indeed we can come alongside one another, bear one another's burdens, that even as we find the world overwhelming, even as we find sometimes uh, being together and the things that we need to accomplish together overwhelming, we're glad that we're not on our own. We're glad that you give us your spirit, and we're glad that you give us one another. We pray that that would indeed encourage us as we consider how we would walk for you in the world, uh, as we as you send us into the week ahead. We pray, God, that we would digest these things, that the fundamental work of the Spirit is to put our attention on Jesus Christ. And, and we pray, God, that that would be a refreshing thing for us, that as we might lose ourselves, we lose ourselves in thinking about the Lord Jesus. And we are reminded of his love and reminded of how we might contribute to each other. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.